Welcome to Go Green Radio, brought to you by Covanta Energy. Reduce, reuse, recycle, rethink renewable energy and energy from waste. This program will help start you thinking about how to protect our world and its important resources. Now here's the host for Go Green Radio, Jill Buck. Welcome to Go Green Radio, folks. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Thanks for listening to us on this holiday weekend. Today, we're joined by two guests that I'm thrilled to have with us. They are scientists, and they have just released a publication that I find absolutely mind-blowing. Um, they're researchers with the Natural Resources Defense Council, NRDC, as you may see in many publications and in mainstream media, one of the most well-respected nonprofit organizations in the, uh, the quote-unquote environmental industry or green industry, so to speak. We're joined by Drs. Kim Knowlton and Dr. Wendy Max. Um, they have just released a study that is groundbreaking in that it's the first one to actually quantify the health care costs of climate change. And there's just a lot that I want to dig into in their study. But first of all, welcome Kim and Wendy to Go Green Radio. Thank you. It's great to have you on and congratulations on your newly released study. We're going to be digging into the details of the study. But first of all, we'll start with Kim and I'd love for you to share with us what the primary objective of the study is. Sure, I'd be happy to, Jill. Um, For a lot of people, I think climate change has seemed for a long time like something that's going to happen in a a time and place that may be far away for a lot of people. And for some people, it may seem like an effect that has to do with polar bears and rising sea level. And mind you, those are really, really important effects. There's no doubt of that. But I think up to this point, there's been a disconnect between climate change and its effects on people's health. And our report really, really is trying to bridge that gap. Because I'm a health scientist, and I know climate change is absolutely a set of issues that has a human face as we think of it, and it is very much about people's health. So our study tried to get its arms around the health-related costs of climate change because they really have not been on the tab, so to speak, in prior studies. When there have been estimates of what the climate change could cost us in the United States, you would typically hear about property damage and maybe those kind of costs are crop damage costs, but the health-related costs have not ever been included. And we knew that health is vitally important, so our report really did estimate those costs. Wendy is an economist at the University of California, so it was her expertise along with our other co-authors that allowed us to do this, and we found that those health-related costs of climate change are totally substantial. We were really surprised. Well, yes. I mean, we're talking about a price tag of $14 billion with the six uh, climate change-related events that you studied. And what I think is so interesting about this study is um, there wasn't a lot of uh, uh, crystal ball gazing in this. What you all did in the study, and we're going to dig into the details as I mentioned, is that you studied weather events that have already happened, where there was already data, um, and these weather events happen to be ones that um, many respected scientists are predicting that there'll be more of these type of events as the overall temperature of the globe starts to warm, and we'll, again, talk about the details of how that happens. But, Wendy, from your perspective as an economist, when you were working on this study and, and talking to your colleagues about the concept of this study and envisioning in your mind who would be taking this study for action? Who was that target audience? 
Well, I think we had two main target audiences in mind. Uh, one would be policymakers, the people that have the ability to affect changes that might reduce these costs, and also the general public. I mean, people need to understand that this is going to affect them and their health and that they ought to be thinking about what, what they can do. You know, I would say that as, as an economist who studies um, the costs of illness, we get very frustrated because we know that these costs are very high, and it's so important to go back a step and figure out, well, what can we do to avoid incurring these costs in the first place? And so, you know, that's the message that we're trying to bring to these, these groups of people. Well, and the thing that we have to remember, of course, we know this about public policymakers, is that because many of them are elected officials, some of them are professionals that are maybe city staff or county staff or hired by state or, or federal government agencies, but oftentimes the people actually taking the votes uh, are from an eclectic background, you know, lists of backgrounds. I mean, we're talking about people who... Um, have all kinds of different educational backgrounds, professional backgrounds, and they come to whatever elected position they they come to, whether it's local, state, or federal. And so in order to reach them with a study like this, you really have to, um, well, you have to play to a lot of, of uh, constituencies, so to speak. And so one of the things that I want to do as we walk through the, the effects of your study and, and how you came to the conclusions that you did is to try and make it as accessible as we can uh, to my listeners because I know if we're able to do that, we'll be able to uh, make it impactful to public policymakers regardless of their their background before they became elected officials. Some of the weather conditions that you study, Kim and Wendy, um, you know, are things that we've been seeing throughout human history. They are not new. They are not atypical. But I think what makes the study so significant is that we have to, at some level, accept that climate change is likely to increase the frequency or the intensity of some of these weather extents to events to the extent that maybe the way that we have normally absorbed the cost of the health-related uh, costs in conjunction with these events is something that's going to be inadequate in the future. And I'm just not sure that your everyday American is on board with that notion. So I'd like to spend a few minutes talking about how climate change is expected to increase the impact of some of these weather, weather scenarios that you studied. Uh, and let's begin by ozone pollution. Um, talk about the effect of, of climate change on what we already see in terms of ozone pollution. I can speak to that, Jill. This is Kim. Um, sure. Well, we know for sure as temperatures increase in the atmosphere, the production of ground-level ozone, which is a major component of smog, um, really increases. And ozone smog is terribly health-harming, unfortunately, as a pollutant in the air, especially for kids and older people, people with asthma, people with respiratory problems. We see that on summer days, hot, cloudless summer days already, that's part of why there tend to be high ozone alert days throughout much of the U.S. in the summertime. So as temperatures in the atmosphere increase with climate change, there will be, in many, many parts of the U.S., the projections are that ozone smog days will likewise increase in their frequency or in their intensity. That's one reason why we selected ozone as one of our case study areas. Right. Well, and just give us kind of a snapshot of some of the health-related problems that humans can can uh, have as a re- as it relates to ozone pollution. 
sure. Yeah, unfortunately, exposure to ozone smog reduces lung function and it inflames people's airways. That leads to increased rates of emergency department visits, higher hospitalization rates, and unfortunately, even premature mortality. That can affect uh, people who are uh, not only have pre-existing respiratory problems, but also healthy people who are active outdoors, athletes. So ozone smog really does affect an awful lot of us. Well, and I mean, you know, for those of us who are sort of sports junkies, we remember very well um, some of the athletes' concerns about going to the Olympics in Beijing. Mm-hmm. Same thing. Yeah. Uh, very same effect. Now let's talk about heat waves. Again, not a new event in human history, but how is it, I mean, it seems kind of silly to even ask the question, how will global warming create more heat waves? But in fact, there are some meteorological, you know, effects to global warming. Even when people are seeing things like snowmageddon, like they did in the Northeast last year, they might be thinking, well, how in the world, uh, you know, can we still talk about global warming with a straight face? And why should I be concerned about heat waves? But in fact, that is the case. Can you give us a little bit, you have the Reader's Digest version of that? Sure. Um, more days of extreme heat or more days, you know, back-to-back heat waves, as you say, that's probably the strongest uh, relationship between uh, climate change and those kind of environmental events that really, really impact human health. As a matter of fact, just last Friday, uh, the SREX report, some people are calling it the report on extreme events, made crystal clear the connection between climate change and more of those days of extreme heat. In fact, there was one projection that by the end of the century, there could be 10 times as many days of the worst, most extreme heat in the United States if we if the United States kind of continues on the highest path of carbon pollution. So for sure we know that the frequency, the duration, the number of days, and the intensity of those heat waves is projected to increase if climate change is allowed to continue. Uh, Heat waves, unfortunately, have been linked to increased rates of emergency department visits, hospitalizations. It can progress and frequently does, unfortunately, to premature mortality from a range of different causes, heart illness, lung um, illness, and kidney ailments as well. Other organ systems are involved in helping the body typically to thermoregulate to try and keep at a good, healthy temperature. Right, right. And, you know, even this is not just something that people in other countries suffer from. I mean, the city of Chicago and uh, other major metropolitan areas have had some very tragic uh, human cost to some of the heat waves that they've had in the last couple of decades. So we know that those can be very dangerous. And hurricanes are something that, again, we've, we've always had them, but how does global warming increase the intensity or frequency of hurricanes? Well, climate change is projected to increase the rainfall and the wind speeds, the high maximum wind speeds associated with hurricanes. Um, that's one of the reasons why we selected a hurricane season in Florida, in our case, the 2004 hurricane season, um, as one of our case study areas. Right. And then in terms of outbreaks of infectious diseases, mm-hmm. again, how is that going to be impacted by climate change? Well, climate change can extend the range of a number of infectious diseases, especially ones like West Nile virus that is carried by um, insects like mosquitoes. Uh, changes in temperature, because mosquitoes are cold-blooded, they, um, their body temperature tends to be the same as the temperature outside. So the warmer it is outside, the more active they can stay for longer periods of time. So warmer temperatures outside allow them to stay active, meaning 
possibly they can bite people and infect them with illnesses like West Nile virus for a longer time. So with rising temperature, the range of West Nile, the activity of the mosquitoes that can allow them to transmit the illness can also increase. And so changing temperature and rainfall patterns has been linked in the United States to the the spread of West Nile virus across the country. And that could indeed, with other illnesses as well, infectious illnesses, increase into the future. Well, and you all also covered river flooding. And, you know, there's a lot of sense to be made with people who live, uh, for instance, in Asia, you know, as, as global temperatures rise and the glaciers that are on, you know, the Tibetan mountains and whatnot, as they melt and, and all of that fresh water comes rolling into their rivers, it, we can understand why there are floods under those conditions. But we don't have glaciers uh, near the United States that are melting and flooding our rivers as far as we can see. So what is it about climate change that could increase the intensity or frequency of river flooding events in the United States? Mm -hmm. It's a good question, but we do understand that as climate change is happening, warmer, uh, the warming atmosphere can actually hold more moisture. And already it's been linked to an increase in the frequency of those most intense rainfall events in the last 50 years, those most extreme rainfall events that can cause that kind of flooding, that can lead to local river flooding. They've already increased 20% sort of on an average for the U.S. as a whole. And that pattern changes in different regions of the U.S. It's as high as 67% in the northeastern United States. But it's interesting, you mentioned previously the big snows we had last winter. When those snows melted in the early spring into spring of last year, that tremendous snow melt coupled with those extreme rainfall events were part of what contributed to the really dramatic and tragic for many people river flooding that we saw through much of the spring and summer of this year. Interesting. That, that all makes perfect sense. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, much more with Dr. Kim Knowlton, Dr. Wendy Max, and the health care costs associated with climate change. Don't go away, folks. There's much more Go Green Radio right after this. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta, Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. 
Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you're just joining us, our guests today uh, are Dr. Kim Knowlton and Dr. Wendy Max. They've just released a study through the Natural Resources Defense Council, the NRDC, that associates uh, healthcare costs with climate change. It's a groundbreaking first-time-ever study that takes six weather, extreme weather events that have already occurred in the United States, assesses the health care costs associated with those events, and begins to give us a snapshot of what may occur in terms of health care costs should these types of weather events become more intense and more frequent, as has been predicted uh, with climate change. So it's a really interesting topic. I hope that you will all engage with some great questions. You know, you can always email me at gogreenradio at gmail.com. You can also... Uh, give me some uh, Twitter feedback at, at Jill Buck. You can always tweet me there. And if we can't answer you during the show, we'll answer you afterwards. So uh, keep those questions coming. Before we went to break, Dr. Kim Knowlton was talking to us about how some of the extreme weather events that they've studied could be intensified by climate change. And there was one more weather event I wanted you to cover, Kim, and that is wildfires. How will climate change um, affect the intensity or frequency of wildfires? Well, we know, Jill, that, that wildfire risk and the chances of wildfire are, are worsened, are increased in areas where temperatures are high, where drought is high, and unfortunately, California has already seen just those conditions. The 2003 wildfire season that we looked at in our study destroyed over 700,000 acres and over 3,600 structures and had really rather dramatic and health effects, which we looked at in our study. Climate change, to your question, climate change is expected or projected to result in even more of that wildfire risk. Between 2005 and then looking out into the 2030s, there's a projected increase of about 84% in the relative Mm -hmm. risk by the end of the century from just those kind of increases, increasing drought, increasing heat, and how that makes the sort of landscape more like a tinderbox, unfortunately. So Mm -hmm. there are ways through those climate models to project how the landscape might be more at risk and then the people that live there and downwind, unfortunately, more at risk from the health effects. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about those health impacts because that's the, the cornerstone of your study. Let's go through the, the various weather events that you studied and talk about, you know, I mean, a, a lot of the mainstream media has already covered, as you mentioned, the structural damage, the property damage, etc. But let's talk about those health care costs and the health impacts to human beings. Let's start with the example of ozone pollution and what you studied and where you studied uh, the health care costs for that scenario. Well, actually for ozone, we uh, based this on some work that looked at the whole United States. This was a nationwide study, and it looked in year 2002, there were nearly an estimated 288 million Americans exposed to ozone smog um, levels above a a health-based standard. Uh, And those exposures, because this is, as we said before, this is an air pollutant that's a really bad actor. It's bad for all of us, but especially people with respiratory uh, illnesses. This exposure we estimated, um, based on the work that that we looked at, hastened death or was caused for premature death among 795 people, was responsible for over 4,000 hospitalizations and over 365,000 outpatient visits. But our estimates around the health-related costs, that was sort of what we brought to the table, we estimated over $6.5 billion associated to those costs. 
remembering that we sort of took work that was out there and then our work was to bring the health-related costs, sort of bring forward a methodology that looked at the cost of those. So those smog levels are anticipated to rise in coming years, as you had asked previously, unless Mm -hmm. we do something to reduce the ozone the kind of emissions that in the atmosphere form more ozone smog because climate change is going to increase temperatures and then the reactions that make ozone smog. Let me ask you this. You know, your, the, the costs that are documented in your study are in $2,008. Hmm. Let's presume that the smog levels, the ozone pollution levels intensify. And so the people who are exposed to it are exposed to many more parts per million than they are even now. Will the cost of health care per capita go up or are we just looking at an overall increase in health care costs because more people will become sickened by this? Well, I think you would you would see both effects. More people will be sick, and those people will probably become sicker. You know, it's one of the reasons it's nice to look at things in terms of cost because you capture multiple effects in terms of this change in dollars. So I think for both reasons, you'd see the costs go up. It makes sense. That makes perfect sense. Now let's talk about the heat waves that you studied. What were the health care impacts and the costs associated with that? Mm-hmm. So it was a little over a two-week heat wave that affected most of the state of California in the year 2006, a really historic heat wave that broke daytime and nighttime uh, temperature records. Uh, I remember it well. Oh, yes. <laughs> That's yes. where I live. <laughs> oh, dear. Most unfortunate. There were over 650, there were 655 uh, excess deaths. Uh, over 1,600 hospitalizations associated, associated with that time frame and more than 16,000 more emergency room visits than one would expect in that time frame of a summertime period. That's a lot. That was really stunning to us when we conducted that study because we were involved in that study as well. The estimated health-related costs were nearly $5.4 billion, and there's mm. more such heat waves projected to occur in future with more frequency uh, as climate change continues, again, unless we take steps to reduce carbon pollution emissions and limit the worst of these effects. That's a stunning cost. And you mentioned that was just under two weeks. So there were another 50 weeks of the year that we had to, you know, we had to just survive. And California's budget is not unlike so many other states' budgets. There's no cush. We don't have a, we don't have a rainy day fund, let alone a really, really hot day fund. So um, one has to wonder. I mean, the next logical answer or question, of course, is where does the money come from to cover these things? But we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Now, when you studied hurricanes, you studied a hurricane season, not just one event. Talk to us about the study uh, that, that gave us the costs that you have in your study about uh, the, the health care costs of hurricanes. Mm-hmm. There, there were actually four major hurricanes during that 2004 hurricane season in Florida. Um, they caused, over the course of that hurricane season, because Florida, as we know, is the, one of the states, if not the state, most at risk, most exposed to, to hurricanes, um, caused 144 premature deaths, nearly 2,200 hospitalizations, 2,600 emergency department visits, and we estimated $1.4 billion in health-related costs. Now, climate change is projected to increase the intensity of hurricanes in future, like the highest wind speeds. 
because we know as sea surface temperatures increase in that part of the North Atlantic, it, it basically provides more energy to the sea surface and then to storm systems that, are, that pass over. It puts more energy into the storm systems with the concern that wind speeds will be higher, potentially causing more damage. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and, you know, for, for even grade schoolers who've had basic you know, training in their science classes about how a water cycle works, I mean, we know that when you increase the heat, any, anybody who's ever stood in a kitchen and boiled water knows you increase the heat, you increase the evaporation. Steam comes off of a boiling pot of water. And so as these sea level, uh, uh, you know, temperature changes begin to happen on the surface, as you mentioned, um, that's when there's more evaporation, more more moisture in the air, and that's you know, a, a big concern when it comes to uh, climate. So it makes perfect sense. Now, in terms of the outbreaks of infectious disease, um, you know, we see a lot of these um, every summer. I mean, we see West Nile in a number of states. Um, what was the health care costs, and, and how do you project that to increase as climate change may impact the outbreaks and the number of outbreaks of, of infectious diseases? So... Our cost estimate was based on a study that looked at Louisiana, the state of Louisiana, and a West Nile virus outbreak that happened there in 2002. Um, That outbreak, unfortunately, resulted in an estimated 24 premature deaths because West Mm. Nile virus can, unfortunately, be fatal. Um, There were 204 hospitalizations and nearly 5,800 outpatient visits. It was a large outbreak. The health-related cost totaled $207 $207 million. Mosquito-borne diseases, they're expected to spread into more northern climates, more what are now thought of as, you know, not hospitable for the insect vectors that can spread those illnesses as temperatures increase, as rainfall patterns change, um, possibly creating more habitable environments for those mosquitoes. Unfortunately, some of the mosquitoes that carry some other Infectious diseases like dengue fever love to live in close proximity to human beings. They love conditions that are like those that we enjoy. Uh So, you know, different illnesses, different infectious diseases have different concerns. We looked at Mm -hmm. West Nile because, again, there was a foundational study to which we could attach our cost estimation method. What I find so striking is that, you know, it's a significant number of deaths, but it's not you know, a, a, a very large number of deaths, and yet the health care costs, you know, are, are in the millions. I mean, 200 plus million dollars. Um, give us just some idea of some of the things that go into those calculations. I mean, uh, were you looking at hospital bills? I mean, where, where did the information come from? Well, when you look at health care costs, we are very fortunate in the United States that we do surveys on a regular basis where we come up with, you know, nationally representative samples of people and find out what the average cost of a hospital stay was. We can look at um, hospital bills. And so we're using this large body of data. We aren't, um, we aren't interviewing individuals necessarily because we want numbers that can be generalized beyond just a particular study. And then we can also look at other kinds of healthcare services. We know, for instance, that for each person who's hospitalized, there are maybe, well, I forgot what the exact number is, but something like 10 outpatient um, visits and a certain number of emergency department visits. The hospital costs are really 
the most expensive, but sort of the top of the pyramid. For each hospitalization, there are many more other types of services. So we were able to use some of those types of data to come up with good estimates of what it would cost to care for people with different different illnesses. Excellent, excellent. Now, you also studied uh, river flooding um, and, and the healthcare costs associated with that. I mean, oftentimes when we hear of those kinds of conditions, what we see on CNN or other news stations are, you know, dramatic pictures of paramedics saving people from rushing water. And so we think of the costs associated with their salaries and emergency services, but not necessarily the healthcare costs. Give us some idea of what you were looking at and the body of data you were looking at to come up with the healthcare costs related to river flooding. Well, it's true that there were, uh, unfortunately, some mortality, some premature deaths associated with the river flooding, the tremendous, I mean, I think we all have in our mind the images of the North Dakota river flooding in Mm -hmm. 2009 with the Red River. Um, But there were also uh, quite a few emergency department visits, 263 of those, and a lot of outpatient visits, about 3,000 outpatient visits. Um, So there were also, you know, those costs associated with that. Those are behind the scenes. We don't see those sort of images. So those are also part of the what adds up in terms of these kind of studies that that we were conducting. Mm-hmm. You know, I would add that it's, I think the the types of events that we looked at really differ in terms of some of them cause a lot of death, some of them cause a lot of injury, so I think, and some of them cause a lot of sickness and, and you know, use of healthcare services. So I think y- you get a nice blend when you look at the six different kinds of um, events. The river flooding, as, as Kim just said, didn't lead to a whole large number of deaths, but there the healthcare costs were quite substantial, whereas you know, hurricanes, um, heat waves, they led to many more deaths. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, you know, what's so, what's so um, well, I hate to say inspiring, but uh, for lack of a better word, what's so panoramic about your study is that it demonstrates, and, and we'll send people to the website in just a moment to look at this, but you have a map associated with this study, and you have done a fantastic job of taking examples from every sector of the United States, and and it's not just coastal areas that you've taken a look at. I mean, there really are um, weather events that could impact anyone in the United States. So um, I think that's I think that was really well done and well thought out. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we'll have much more with doctors Knowlton and Max, and we'll be talking about um, more of the healthcare costs related to climate change related weather events. So don't go away. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, and ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta, Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. 
VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. If you're just joining us and you wish that you had listened to the first part of the segment, don't worry because it will be replayed on the Green Living Network for Voice America. If you go to voiceamerica.com, click on the Green Living button that's up at the top, you can hear this episode in its entirety again next Tuesday between 9 and 10 a.m. Pacific, noon to 1 on the East Coast. Everybody in Mountain and Central, you guys do your own math. You know where to find us. But you can hear this entire episode once more. Check it out and maybe recommend it to some friends who might be interested in this topic. We're talking about the healthcare costs of climate change and the weather events that um, we've been told by very reputable scientists from the IPCC and others to expect more of these extreme weather events. And so what we have today is the first study and the authors of this very first study from the Natural Resources Defense Council about the healthcare costs. We hear so much about some of the other costs associated with climate change, infrastructure, uh, structures of all kinds, uh, property uh, costs and things like that. But what we haven't heard is what's it going to mean to our health and what will that cost? So today we're joined by Dr. Kim Knowlton, Dr. Wendy Max of the NRDC, and they have just released the study. Thanks again so much for joining us, ladies. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. You know, one of the concepts in your study that I've had a hard time wrapping my head around is the total cost of premature mortality. And, you know, you used a, an economist's a term in this, the value of statistical life approach. And what I kind of struggle to understand is who bears this cost? I'm not an economist. And I, I feel like this is such an important part of your study because this particular piece of the cost analysis is 95% of the cost that you identify. So understanding this total cost of premature mortality is something I think it's really important to, to grasp. Help us understand that approach and, and who's responsibility this cost really is well you know let me say that when when you do these studies to look at things like climate change that impacts all of society so we want to look at you know the broader societal costs the the value of a statistical life is one way of valuing the lives that are lost here and you know we would be remiss if we didn't consider that to be one of the very important costs of climate change and it's not an individual value. It's not what any individual would um, would value their life at. But what you do is you ask a lot of people. So say you ask 100,000 people, what would you pay to reduce the risk of, of dying by a little bit? And say we come up with a, a small amount that would save one life, and each person is willing to pay $100 for that. Then we have 100,000 people times $100, $10 million. It's kind of the collective value that people are placing on life. And the way they do that is to take into account, you know, all the ways that it impacts them. So it might be the um, 
wages that they wouldn't be able to earn or the cost to their family. Um, all of those things are wrapped up into this societal cost. What we used in this study is the value that the Environmental Protection Agency has developed, you know, doing many of these kinds of studies, um, asking people, um, looking at sort of what kinds of values you come up with, and the value used was uh, $7.9 million in 2008 terms. So it's, it's the sort of collective way that we value a life. And it's so important that that be included here because these climate change events definitely lead to loss of life. Absolutely. Here's here's the kind of kitchen table version of this question. Let's say I'm the mayor of a town that's near a river. And we know that, you know, with climate change coming, there could be a lot more flooding in my river. And I look at your study and I see the cost uh, that you've associated with a, a extreme weather event like this, and 95% of that cost is the loss of life. What do I do with that information? Is that something that my city government should be saving for? Is that something that we ask local life insurance companies to save for? What do we do with that piece of information as policymakers? Well, I think you take that number and you say, wow, we better figure out a way to save all these lives. That's what I'd hope you would do with that information. It's not something that people, you know, will be paying out of their pocket in the same way that we pay for health care costs. But when you look at, you know, the broader impact on society, as a public official, you know, your job is to, to minimize these societal costs by, you know, coming up with plans to reduce the impact of river flooding and to save the lives that would be lost. Okay, so that's what you're thinking policymakers will do with these numbers, is get disturbed enough about this to get out in front of climate change, to the extent that they can, and mitigate it. Is that kind of the thinking? I would hope that they would respond in that way. And and there are, you know, costs that are going to be paid out of somebody's pocket as well, these health care costs. So both of these kinds of costs are in here and should should both spur us to action. Mm-hmm. Under our current system, how are we paying for extreme weather events? I mean, I know that some of it is governmental, some of it's insurance companies, some of it's private individuals. How are we doing this right now? And and how do you see that changing if climate change really does cause more of these extreme weather conditions? How in the world will we absorb these costs? I think for the most part now, unfortunately, we're paying for extreme weather events after the fact. It hopefully, we'll begin to invest even more in preparedness because we're talking about, hopefully, we're talking about actions, preparedness steps that, as Wendy said, can help prevent and avoid these kind of costs needing to be spent. There's one study that estimates that actions taken to counteract these kind of event co- events sort of steps needing to be taken that those kind of investments cost four to five times less than paying for the event-related health consequences. That if you invest in the preparedness steps up front, you basically save yourself money, which is another way of saying that preparedness pays. It's like the, the good news side of this very sobering news and study that we're bringing forward and others have as well. Mm-hmm. Are you concerned at all that... Healthcare companies, insurance companies will take your study and use it as an excuse to kind of jack up rates on private 
you know, uh, purchasers of insurance. Is there any concern about that? Well, I think, you know, for one thing, that's why we, we do have some oversight on insurance companies. I don't, um, I, I think that they're already aware that these potential costs are, are coming down the road. You know, I think that oftentimes environmental researchers and healthcare policy people are not on the same side of the issue as the insurance companies. But here's mm-hmm. a case where everybody has the same goal, you know, maybe for different reasons, but I think these groups can all work together with the same objective of reducing these costs ultimately. So I think it's a great opportunity to work with the insurance company and to get their support for the kinds of things we propose to um, mitigate the impact of global, um, global warming and climate change. Well, let's get into that. What are some of the things that would mitigate, uh, you know, what you've what you've proposed as you know potential costs and healthcare costs in the future? Um, what are some of the things that public policymakers could be doing right now to maybe um, get out in front of these healthcare costs and perhaps avoid them at least in some part? Well, there's two real pieces to it. There's the investing in preparedness to meet the the challenges of the extreme events when they happen, and that could be from the point of view of heat waves, uh, investing in heat wave health alert warning systems, which cities like Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and others have done to great success, or it could be plans to identify and track and prevent vector-borne and other infectious diseases and make sure that you know about outbreaks early on when they happen so that outbreaks don't sort of take hold and, you know, begin to spread without public health officials knowing about it full well and take, you know, care to watch for environmental conditions that change and contribute to those outbreaks. Or it could Mm -hmm. be like New York City is doing, planting a million trees to reduce the urban heat island effect and reduce stormwater runoff and try and prevent flooding. There is a lot that's happening on preparedness and adaptation around the country. The other side of that is reducing carbon pollution to the extent that that's going to limit the very worst of the climate health impacts in future for our children for our grandchildren to limit extreme events in future so that those costs don't multiply by enormous factors in future. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I wonder, too, um, you know, if, if everyday Americans, you know, get a hold of your study, I hope they will. It's not long. It's not arduous. I, I would highly recommend that everybody take a look at it. What do you think that they should be doing to interact with policymakers, to be interacting with um, health care providers and those around them who would be in the position of, of serving the public with these extreme uh, weather conditions happening more often. Uh, what can everyday Americans do to bring about the kind of changes that are necessary? Oh, a few things. A great question. Um, one, you can visit the NRDC website because we have, besides the paper, which people can access it, Shall I give the URL? Absolutely. The- Go right ahead. All right. It's, people can get free access to the paper that Wendy and myself and our co-authors wrote that Jill's talking about at www.nrdc.org slash health slash accounting for costs. That's plural costs. There's a link there to the fine journal Health Affairs, and there you can get the full text of the paper. We also, NRDC has maps at nrdc.org slash climate maps where you can see if you're living 
in one of the 13 states that has a climate health preparedness plan. There's only 13 states that right now do have in place a plan that is ready to cope with extreme events and the health impacts that they bring to bear on the populations. You can visit that site, nrdc.org slash climate map. See if you're one of those states. If you're not, ask your elected officials why not. It pays to have a preparedness plan in place. And indeed, Jill, your idea is great. Talk to your healthcare providers and ask them what they know about the kind of health effects that are happening locally and start that conversation with your, your health professional. They're getting very, very active on this issue. Um, and right now the Clean Air Act, um, which is the Environmental Protection Agency, is the, the federal agency is, that is charged with reducing carbon emissions to protect health right now. So people's voices are definitely important in that effort to continue to protect human health as we move forward. Excellent. And thank you so much for all those great links and resources. I know that a lot of our listeners are very social media savvy and they will be uh, tweeting out and Facebooking out and uh, putting out all those links, I'm sure, to their, um, to their networks as well. So, folks, we've got to take a really quick commercial break. But when we come back, we have one more segment with Dr. Knowlton and Dr. Max. So don't go away. There's more Go Green Radio right after this. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Take a wild guess. How much garbage generated in the United States today is converted into energy? Is it 26%, 43%, or 14%? Working here and around the world to produce a reliable supply of clean, green energy, Covanta Energy works with communities to turn household trash into energy. Oh yeah, that question I asked earlier? Today, only 14% of U.S. garbage is converted to energy. Just 14%. Covanta alone processes half of that municipal solid waste into renewable energy for a cleaner world. For more information about Covanta Energy, visit us today at www.covantaenergy.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Jill would love to hear your comments or questions on today's show, so call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Write to us, too. Save some trees and send us an email to gogreenradio at gmail.com. That's gogreenradio at gmail.com. Now back to Go Green Radio with your host, Jill Buck. Welcome back to Go Green Radio. Hope that you are all having a great day and that you had a great Thanksgiving. I'm so thankful uh, that you are listening. I'm also thankful to our guests, Dr. Knowlton and Dr. Max, who are joining us to talk to, to us about something that I think has been, uh, if not overlooked, at least uh, not considered to the extent that they have. And I'm glad that they've put out the study that they have linking health care costs, something that each and every American has to be concerned with, and the extreme weather conditions that are projected to increase um, as climate change continues to progress. We see extreme weather situations anyway. I mean, this is nothing new, absolutely nothing new. But what we're 
in for. And what a lot of scientists are warning us about is that some of these extreme weather conditions that have been incidental or atypical uh, may very well be increasing in frequency and intensity. And if we're going to be prepared for that, uh, we can't overlook the very important piece, which is our own health, the impact that these uh, events will have on our health, but also what it will cost uh, individuals and society. You know, we were talking during the break about the, the positive aspects of this study. And I want to give both of you a chance to, uh, to talk to our listeners about what you see as the upside of this study, the can-do piece. Uh, we'll start with you, Dr. Max. What's your, what's your take on that? Well, my take is that even though we know that the, um, the health-related costs of climate change can be very, very large, there are also things that we can do to diminish them. We actually have um, interventions, if you will. We know how to set up early warning systems. We know how to um, triage people. If we invested a little bit of money in getting some of these systems working more efficiently and developing uh, climate change plans at the state level, we would be able to reduce some of these costs. And so I think, you know, here we actually know how to deal with it. We have things that work, and we ought to be doing them. Mm-hmm. What about you, Dr. Knowlton? What's your take on the, the positive impact of your study, and what should empower policymakers and everyday Americans as a result of the information that you've, that you've collected for us in this terrific study? I agree with Wendy. I, the power to move towards creating healthier communities, which we can totally do, is in people's hands. And I am very encouraged that, that as you say, Jill, you think that, and I hope too, that people will read this study. Because we're sort of at this crossroads where we know that climate change is having effects and is going to have more effects in the future. We can move towards healthier communities and we can get ready to deal with these effects but we have to sort of hold our, the people who work for us, our elected officials, we have to tell them that our health matters, that getting our communities ready is a priority, and we want them to reflect our concerns because health matters. Our community's health, my health years, our children's, it very much matters. And $14 billion, our estimate in this study, is really just, you know, a very conservative estimate in just six places. Mm-hmm. The, the dollar estimate would be much bigger had we looked all across the country in every year. And we're all trying to be, you know, judicious and save money, and we want to do that for our kids, too, and our grandkids. So I say let's save money. Let's do it the, a, a wise way. Let's make healthier communities, and let's trim the bill on climate change by reducing carbon pollution and making more prepared communities. We know how to do it. There's, let's follow the pattern set by so many successful communities across the country and move the, the needle from 13 states to 30 in a few years, and then even more a few years after that. Well, then tell us again, um, for those of us, and I know that a lot of our listeners are really action-oriented people. In fact, a lot of them are very passionate green moms, you know, and they take hold of information like this, um, and then they do something with it. Tell us again where our listeners can find out whether or not their state has uh, at least some semblance of a plan, an action plan in place, or where they can go if they do not. Tell us again about the NRDC website and, and the resources available there. Sure, I'm happy to. 
So the website where you can see these maps of the U.S., find out what's happening in the way of climate health threats where you live and what's happening. If you're one of the 13 states that has a climate health preparedness plan, go please to www.nrdc.org slash climate maps, plural, climate Mm -hmm. maps. And there you will see the maps, and you can uh, venture into the maps and see what's happening right in your backyard. There's all 50 states in the District of Columbia, and you can zoom in and see what's happening or not where you live and know how to take action because you really have a lot of, a lot of power in your hands. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, right now there are so many things going on with our healthcare system. I mean, you really don't even have to get past page one or page two of any newspaper or blog or any other way that you take in your news um, to see healthcare, our system being bombarded with everything from reforms to the future costs of who, kids who are uh, autistic and then the care they're going to need as adults to this uh, you know, childhood obesity and what that may cost. There's just so many different um, burdens right now, uh, both current and projected for future burdens on our healthcare system. How do you plan or how do you think um, we could move the, the climate change-related healthcare burden to the front burner in the midst of all this uh, white noise surrounding our healthcare system. Two things come to mind. Uh, I think health is absolutely central to people's lives, and I think if if people uh, once the linkage between climate change and its health effects is more central in people's minds than we do our you know, research, and thank you for your help in getting our findings out to people. And that connection is made. Hopefully then it's just a matter of everyone connecting the dots for themselves and with one another and then bringing that, taking that to the people who essentially work for them and making that a priority. Health is a priority in our homes, in our lives, in our households. So let's make it a national priority. If health were a national priority, then climate change and doing something about it would also be a national priority. So I have to believe that that day could come. Well said. Well said. Uh, Wendy, I'm just curious. You know, you're an economist here in, at the UC, you know, University of California system. When you imagine um, the individuals most likely to take your study and become sort of the advocates, the mouthpieces for what you have um, presented in this study and to, to create real policy change, who do you envision? Who are the people? Um, what is really the, the catalyst group, you think, in this country to take your study and take it all the way to Capitol Hill and make a difference? Who, who are those people? Well, I think we have some you know, wonderfully savvy environmental folks who really know this area, and I think that giving them these cost estimates is giving them another piece of information that can be really useful to take the message forward. You know, I've seen in other work I've done that when you approach um, legislators, dollars really resonate with them. You know, they want to know what something costs. Um, And so I'm hoping that what we're really doing is providing another um, piece of information that will be useful to those advocates that are so good at getting out the, you know, the, the environmental climate change message, but now have another way, another group of people that they can take the message to with, with some more facts that will resonate with them. So that's what I would like to see happening with this work. 
And let's pretend that for a minute um, environmental advocates are shoved to the side as extremists um, and they're kind of poo-pooed by some policymakers. Who then? Kim, what do you think? Who's left? Uh, oh, uh, the people and leadership. I mean, it doesn't take many uh, clear voices of leadership um, to really make a significant difference. It, you know, that's always been the story. Of, mm-hmm. You know, the clear voice of leadership and small groups of people can make enormous differences. So um, even if, the, as you've put it, the environmental groups are moved to the side, people being affected, communities, you know, increasingly vulnerable to these extreme events, um, what, of whatever political persuasion, politics aside, the voice of the people being affected saying, something is happening here. I don't want it to happen again. Let's do something for me and us and my kids about this. I think that that's sort of the connection that is being made, and it's just a matter of time before that coalesces into, um, hopefully, into some really um, very clear-cut action. Well, and I don't disagree with either of you, but I'll give you my answer. Very simple. Moms. (laughs) I think moms are the backbone of this particular issue because there's nothing that we wouldn't do to protect our children's health. We're the ones that take them to the doctor. We're the ones that take them to the dentist. Mm -hmm. Um, By and large, it's not to say that dads don't, but but by and large, I think the moms in America are the ones who are going to really wrap their arms around what you've put out in this study the same way they wrap their arms around their children and out of protection of their young, I think that they're the ones that could make the difference. That's my hope. That's my feeling anyway as a mother of three. I want to thank you, Kim and Wendy. Thank (laughs) you. you. That's so exciting. It's a children's health issue. That's so exciting, Jill. Thank you. Well, I think that's the way it's it's going to happen. That's what I see. And and I talk to moms across not just the country but around the world with the Go Green Initiative, the nonprofit organization I started in 2002. And I'll tell you, they are passionate and they are serious and they love their kiddos so much that so uh, they see they see a connection between uh, climate change and the health of their children. Boy, don't get in their way. Absolutely. <laughs> well, I'm not. Good. I'm walking with them. <laughs> well, thank you, ladies, for joining us on Go Green Radio. Thank you to our listeners. Uh, have a great week, everyone. Um, and we'll be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. Till then, do something in your life to go green. Did you get some terrific ideas from today's show? Please join us for more next Friday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time. It's Go Green Radio with Jill Buck here on Voice America. Go Green Radio is proudly sponsored by Covanta Energy, a leader in providing renewable energy solutions for a cleaner world. Visit www.covantaenergy.com for more information. We'll see you here next week.